Are you ready? It's that time! Welcome to Man Buzzins and Jesus. I already forgot what episode number one, even though I just 17, Ben. Season two, episode number 17. We're off to a flying start. Uh, my name is Pastor Ben Olschlager. I'm a pastor here in Lake Orion, Michigan. The man next to me is Pastor Josh Laborious in Eastvale, California. And our guest today is we're gonna flatter him a little bit here. Uh, probably both of our favorite professor from seminary. Mm-hmm. Um he probably already knew that, though. Uh, Dr. Joel Bierman is our guest, and he's on with us. Why, Josh? Because today we are talking about uh, the doctrine of two kingdoms or two realms, as I know Dr. Bierman prefers, and well, it's probably better. Um, and this came from, I was doing a Bible study in Revelation with some of my um, my church people. And Always a hazardous idea. <laughs> I think it's a party. And we got to, to some of the symbolism that, you know, we talk about political power, we talk about cultural power. And the question came up about two realms. And they're like, you should do a podcast on, on two realms. And I was like, I don't know how, if I feel super qualified to do that. So Ben and I, we got together, we said, who should, like, who should we invite to talk about this? Um, and for any of you who are, uh, who are totally unfamiliar with kind of that language and you're listening. Um, I actually, I have pulled up my notes from my church and world class with the esteemed Dr. Bierman. And here's what I have on the doctrine of two realms. Um, God oversees both. So we never leave God behind in either one. And we have the temporal, the time bound element and the spiritual one Um, creation oriented versus creator oriented, not one above the other. Christ will return and unite the both of them. So we need to maintain a distinction, but not a divorce, keeping a dynamic and interactive tension. I, that's got to be a direct quote. Um, <laughs> quietism is wrong, so one realm should support, check, and correct the other. Um, and collapsing the two is also wrong because the church either becomes drunk with power or begins to look the other way. So that, those are kind of my summary notes that I have from that. And uh, what we want to open up to you, Dr. Bierman, is kind of what do you think are the most important things to think about as we're talking about this interaction between the two realms? And how should that impact how people live, how they interact with the church, with the government, with all, all of that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, this is a hugely important, I think, topic, not just because it's a, like a little piece of theology, but kind of is one of these paradigmatic kind of grounds things and it has a way of shaping how you think about all kinds of stuff and this is exceedingly relevant in our immediate american um, context with all the political discussions going on all the time and people are endlessly complaining about turmoil angst and you know all this contention and not liking it and they're and they're so they're thinking a lot about churches about this political stuff so i think christians in particular need to have some clear guidelines and how to approach this and think about this. And that's to me what is the, the beauty and the power of Luther's teaching of the two realms. Um, so 
the first thing I would say is don't be afraid to talk about it. Uh, there, in the scholarly circles, two, the two kingdoms doctrine is often poo-pooed and even denigrated because this gets a little complicated. And I won't get into the guts of this, but it gets wrapped up into the whole um, German Third Reich Hitler stuff because the, the Nazis, frankly, abused and co-opted a lot of Lutheran teaching to be able to accomplish their purpose. And one of the teachings that they got wrong um, and that a lot of Lutherans got wrong was this idea of, oh, there's the church and that's my spiritual life. And then there's the state, the government, and that's my secular life. And the two never meet. And they're two separate realities. And that's the two kingdoms. So we have kingdom of God, kingdom of the world, and they're doing their different things. And so I have my God life, and I have my world life. And so Hitler is the duly elected leader in the government. That's fine. And then I can still go to church and they don't, they don't mash up. They don't meet. And what you end up with then is this idea that Lutherans believe in the separation of church and state, just like Jefferson did, just like Americans. And this is rampant all over the place. And then that's what leads to the thing I called in your notes, quietism, that somehow our job is just to follow the leader and don't question. And so long as you're not telling you to commit murder or something horrendous, which ironically is what exactly what happens in the Third Reich, because they knew you to, to enough things that eventually even that seems to make sense. But the problem is that this very notion that these are separate spheres is dead wrong. The right way to understand this is God is at work in his world. And that's what the two kingdoms or the two realms is answering is, how does God work in the world? He works in two very distinct ways. He works in the temporal realm to make sure that the world is working the way he intended it to work. It's functioning the way he wants it to function. And he works in the spiritual realm so that God's grace is being delivered and that redemption is being delivered and restoration is being taught and people are being made right with him and with one another. And so we have two different things going on as God is working. The temporal realm thing and the spiritual realm thing, they're not at odds. They're not in competition. One's not better than the other. They are complementary, and they inform each other and guide each other, and they're very much involved with each other. So that's kind of the key thing I would say is recognizing it's much more um, fluid and much more integrated than we tend to think of it. So just a couple of things bouncing off of that. One, I mean, you've you pretty clearly outlined how uh, the Nazis corrupted the the quietism and the separating of these two realms. Um, Josh and I have done a lot of talking on the podcast lately about various political issues and how lately the the tendency seems to shift more in the other direction that Christians want to uh, take hold of and oftentimes, in my mind at least, abuse the uh, the civil realm for the sake of the uh, spiritual realm. Um, is that something that you're also seeing or am I, am, am I misplacing that? No, 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 you're, you're, you're right. There, there's this tendency to, um, well, there's, there's lots of issues going on here from all sides of the political spectrum, whether you're far left or far right. Um, there's the tendency to want to get things to work our way and to be in control. One of the things that Howard Walsh likes to say a lot, and I've been reading Howard Walsh lately, which is always a dangerous thing, but um, one of the <laughs> things he likes to say is that the, a mark of Christianity is we live knowing we're not in control. And I think this is, is exactly right. We, we trust God to be in control. 
we trust that he's going to work things out in his way and we don't need to be in control of the little stuff along along the along the along the way now do we care about injustice yeah do we care about um, violation of god's will for his creation oh yeah so is abortion wrong yep is um redefining marriage wrong yep that's a problem is treating immigrants like they're not real people wrong yep that's wrong so there's lots of ways of violating god's will that are very political and i'm not suggesting that the church should not be political but we need to be careful in how we are political that we're not trying to use political um strength or power to accomplish our goals but we're simply trying to help the world be what god intends it to be which is a world premised on his justice his definition of what is right, and then helping people to function that way. That's what the church is invested in. Um, one of the things I think is a good marker for if the church is on track with its political involvement is what's its goal? Is it trying to enhance its own well-being, trying to protect its own rights, or is it trying to care for somebody who is marginalized or being um, misused and mis uh, being abused by the world? That's so kind of perfect. Go ahead, Josh. Kind of a question with that is because in in at least in my experience and what I see, America is so invested in this idea of of separation of church and state that um, I think it becomes very difficult for the church, especially corporately, or anyone who has a, a pastor attached to their name at any point to speak into these. Like if I were to go to a city council meeting and they were they were debating something that was worth speaking up for the sake of people who couldn't speak up for themselves. If I go into that meeting and I start speaking up and my and pastor gets detached my name, a lot of people are immediately going to cry foul. Right. So how, how can we kind of step into that? What or have you seen any instances where people have successfully done so? Well, the last part of your question, I don't know about. Um, I'm sure there have been. I don't pay a lot of attention <laughs> to the details. Um, but the, the, the broader conceptual part of this I'll speak to, and you're raising some fascinating questions, which is what happens when these two realms inter, interact and the pastor is the living embodiment of these two things coming together. And if you want an even sharper illustration, think of a military chaplain who is paid by the state with the state's agenda and yet is a servant of the church. There you've got, talk about enmeshed. They, they are just completely joined together. And so you, you've made several very good points. Now, so I'll just kind of look, make some comments about all this whole scenario. Is it right for a pastor to go to a public meeting and share his opinion? Yes. Should he be there? Absolutely. If no one else is speaking and he needs to do it, he needs to go. And does he go then as a private citizen? No, he can't ever be a private citizen. He's always going to be a spokesman for the church. And this notion that sometimes pastors have, oh, I'm not speaking as a pastor now, I'm just a private citizen. It doesn't work. You, as you said, you've got pastor in front of your name. You are always pastor. You are always a spokesman for the church. You're representing the church. And you need to know that. You can't ever act in such a way that, oh, this private citizen now, you don't, you don't get that. You don't get that gimme. You, you, you are always on the spot. You're always embodying the church because that's your vocation, one of your vocations. You are that. So, when you go realize that but now does that mean oh because you're church you have nothing to say that's nonsense because i'm church i'm thinking a certain way i'm thinking that god's reality matters i'm thinking that his truth is normative and i'm going to speak that way and what i'm going to say is true for all of you because you're part of god's creation i know that 
They might just push back. They might disagree, but I know that. And so that's why I speak with some confidence and with some authority. God has said this, or maybe I don't need to invoke God. I just say, common sense tells us this, or this is not good for people. And we know this. And if I can build my argument based on scientific studies, so much the better. And it's not hard to do because science and God don't disagree. Um, not when we're paying attention to what's going on. And so I think you, you, you raise the idea that should I be there? Absolutely. Should I speak as one who's in the church? Yeah. Now, does that mean I have to put my clerical on or put a stole on and go and look really official? Not necessarily, but I need to realize I can't hide who I am and I don't intend to. But I also don't think that it disqualifies me from speaking or it doesn't mean I have to say only spiritual things. I can just talk to this world about how to be a more just world and I talk from my context. That's absolutely appropriate to do. Bouncing off of that a little bit, um, I've had a lot of conversations with members of my church about the way that Christians have approached politics and especially our propensity to um, kind of turn a blind eye to especially like character issues around politicians and um, like. yeah, the ones we like and um, like some of the tactics and things that are used to advance quote unquote Christian values. Mm -hmm. um, so if a Christian, regardless of whether or not they are a pastor, finds themselves in a political arena, either in a conversation with a family member over a, a dinner table or in front of a podium at a uh, civic function, like a town hall meeting, um, should we not all kind of come with the approach of we are representative of the church? Because even if they're not a pastor and they're not necessarily the theologically trained voice, if somebody were at that meeting and then wandered into that church, you know, a month or two later for a funeral, um, and they recognize, you know, this person from this civic meeting that was, you know, cussing out the, the school board or something, um, would that not also have a pretty detrimental uh, presentation to, to the people who are, are seeing that? Well, yeah, of course. You, you, your, your question is absolutely right. You need to think about who you are and what you're representing, whether you're a pastor or just a lay person. And for a lay person who bears the name Christian to be acting in an unchristian way is always wrong. Always wrong, regardless of the cause. Now, does that mean you need to be quiet? No, you can speak, but think about who you're representing and what your what your purposes are here. So that's that's the on the face of it. Now, the bigger underneath question, what you're hinting at here is the whole <laughs> character matter. Yeah, it, it does. It does. Um, but see, this way things get complicated because there can be a person who's running for office who I think has got horrible character. And I would not want my kid ever to look like this person. And yet I might vote for that guy. And you might say, how could you do that? You're being inconsistent. No, I'm not. Because my vote is for the person I believe is going to more nearly uphold God's justice for the most people in this world. It's very pragmatic. Now you can say, well, I need to be completely idealistic when I vote. And I'm only going to vote for Christian people. Fine, you can do that. You can throw your vote away. Um, I think that's not being responsible. I'll make my argument that way. But I'm going to be a responsible part of this democratic um, republic that I I'm in, been born into. Then I need to function in a way that takes into account how these democracies work, how these republics work, and I can be part of that. And there, you're always going to be going for the 
least obnoxious person or the one who might more nearly bring something to bear that's going to be good for the country. And you have to sort that stuff out. And you are responsible then for, you know, does, does my vote advance God's purposes or work at cross purposes to what God would want going on in the world? You need to be asking those kinds of questions. And that's how you should be thinking. Now, back to then. So do I vote in a Christian way? Yep. Do I talk in a Christian way at meetings? Yep. Do I talk in a Christian way to my family members? Yes. In all those situations, you are always bringing Christ. You're always speaking for Christ. It doesn't mean you have to say spiritual things or use religious language, but you're always God's representative in those situations. And you need to act like that and speak like that. Um, so with your permission, Ben, I, I want to pivot a little bit because this is something I've been going back and forth on. Um, in my in my studies in my educational doctorate program at Liberty, we read Rod Dreyer, Rod Dreyer, Rod Dreyer, Dreyer. the Benedict Option, prim primarily looking at how he talks about schools and education, because that's the program I'm in. We're talking, um, you know, how does Christian like how did I think with a paper we were writing was something along the lines of how does Christian value um, impact how we structure education, how we approach education. But as I was reading through his material on particularly schools, there, there are a lot of places where I think um, he's off base, maybe he goes too far. But when he's talking about schools, he, at least what I remember from his argument, he makes this argument that like with your kids, Put them in a school that's going to build up your values and i'm out here in california um i i have a lot of members who are who work in the public school system and the reality is um no matter what you see about the news about what is being taught in california schools a lot of the things that get passed it's it's more along the lines of you can teach this now not you have to teach this now mm. so they're not as far gone as if you watch national news, you might see, but at the same time, I, I have a lot of parents who come at it from this attitude of, if I send my kid to a public school, they're not going to be instilled with these Christian values, and I'm going to be fighting an uphill battle on that. So my question is, when, when we're talking about things like that, how much do we say we need to speak into this and we need to inform the values of how these kids are being served? And is there a point where we say this system is beyond what we can do and we need and, and you know, we pull our kids out and we put them in in private education, we put them in Lutheran schools, we, we homeschool them, whatever the case may be. And, and kind of where is that balance point? Well, yeah. OK, this is easy to answer. Um, I'm glad you're reading Roger Ayer. That's good. And um, he, he's a voice that should be, we need to pay attention to. His Benedict option has just sent ripples through all kinds of, you know, everybody has got something to say about it. Most people are pretty, pretty critical of it. Um, with a few caveats in place, I'm actually pretty sympathetic to his basic premise, which is that if we're going to be the church, we need to take seriously what that means to be church. And I think that's exactly right. Um, now, does that mean we escape from the world? Quite the contrary. Uh, for the church, we're very interested in the world, we're very engaged in the world, but we need to pay attention to some basic realities about 
formation and habituation and how people are shaped in their thinking. And we're shaped in our thinking by all of our interactions all the time. And so the reality is that the world is teaching me how to think when I'm participating in the world. And it does. And the church is trying to, we're also trying to teach people how to think. So if we have the notion that, oh, we can cover everything that we can make people think rightly about God by two hours on Sunday and an hour and a half on Wednesday, we're good to go here. When you got your kid eight hours a day, five days a week, sitting at the feet of people who have a completely different agenda, you're kidding yourself. And, and that's part of the reality I think is going on. So what I think Dreyer is simply doing is saying is, you know, if we're going to be the church, we need to come to terms with what that means and realize that living in the world is a dangerous place for us and it's going to have an impact. He's right. He's right. And so does the church need to be honest about that and say, we're living in a culture that is at odds with Christian truth. It is. And if we're going to be faithful to what God calls us to be, do we need to make a distinction between us and maybe start making the lines between us a little more abrupt? I think there's truth to that. It doesn't mean we retreat from the world or reject it, but we know who we are and we know who the world is. And we're very clear about this. That part I'm very sympathetic to. Now, on the particulars of do Christians need to think long and hard about where the kids go to school? Well, amen to that. As, as strongly as possible, I would say that amen to that. And does, so you need to be thinking what's going on here. And don't give me this. Well, most of their teachers are still Christian. I don't care if your teachers are Christian or not. It's the, more the context of what's, what's the gestalt that they're living in and what's the agenda. And the public school agenda is to make people good Americans and good Americans aren't good Christians. <laughs> good Americans, and I, I, I know people don't like that, but it's true. Good Americans think that everybody has a right to do what they want. Um, anybody's opinion is as good as anybody else's opinion. And the majority decides what's right and wrong. 51% makes it right. That's what Americans think. That's how America works. That's not what Christians think. It's not how Christians work. You think about the fundamental things about who we are, what we're here for, what matters in life. And at every single point, Christians and Americans disagree at every single point that matters. Now, we might agree on being nice to people and you know loving America. Oh, we can agree on that. Fine. But when it gets to what's the point of life? Why are we here? What, what defines right and wrong? We disagree on every single point. And so if a Christian parent is asking, who's teaching my kid? They should be asking hard questions, not just, are they going to be ready for college? Are they going to get a, um, into the best college and make good money? That's not what matters anyway. They should be asking, are this, is this school forming my child to know God's truth, to walk with God, and to be cultivated in the virtues that honor God and serve people? Is that what's happening in the school? And if they can't say yes to that, why are they sending their kid there? Period. And I think we need to be a lot more blunt and hard about these things. Instead of making it easy to say, well, yeah, parochial school is expensive. Um, homeschool is a drag. It is a drag. Um, it takes a lot of time. But who's educating your kid? You need to be thinking about these things really seriously. And the fact that these questions are being asked, I think, is it's high time they're being, they're being asked. They, they need to be asked, and we need to come to conclusions. Now, does that mean we, by pulling my child out of the public school system, I'm going to turn my back on the world? No. But I'm also recognizing the importance of forming my child to follow Christ. That's my first obligation. Reaching into the world of God's truth, that's second. And I'm not going to ever use my kid as a tool to reach the world until they're ready. And at eight years old, they're not ready. 
And at 16, almost all of them aren't ready. A few might be, but those are the exceptions. And you as the parent need to know, where's my kid at? Are they, when are they ready to start jumping into the world and having at it? And that's your job as a parent. And until they're ready to jump in the world and have at it, don't send them into the world expecting them to convert the world. It's not going to happen. The opposite is going to take place most of the time. I know those are hard things to say, but I, I think they need to be said. And I think the church needs to be a little bit more cognizant of the, the reality of the world around us. We hear it all the time. We think it's overblown and hyper, hyperventilated, but uh, it's a nasty world. And the objectives of the world are clearly at cross purposes without those of the church. They, they just are. So you mentioned there several times that like, while we're doing this, while we're getting kids into a Lutheran education or while we're homeschooling them, we can't like pull ourselves out of the world right. or use this as an excuse to pull ourselves out of the world. Um, and that is, you know, more often than not the criticism of either homeschooling or of a, a parochial school, right? Is that it doesn't expose kids to the realities of the world. Um, so if, if you were uh, given the authority to design a curriculum or design the, the educational path of, of a parochial school, um, how would you best go about doing that yeah. and, and engaging kids with the world while also, you know, really grounding them in, in the kind of values and, yeah. and theology that we want them to grow up in? Yeah, I'm, I, maybe I'm naive. No, I'm not naive. Maybe I, I certainly have an agenda here. And um, I'm a big fan of sheltering. I really am. I mean, you hear all the time, don't shelter your kids. I think that's nonsense. I'm, I'm absolutely into sheltering kids. You know, you don't expose a three-year-old to garbage. You just don't. There's stuff they shouldn't be watching. Well, why does it change when they get to be eight? You know, they're going to encounter the world. I, I, driving down the road, looking at billboards, they're encountering the world for crying out loud. You, you can't, you're going to encounter the world. Now, I don't want to create in my children or my grandchildren or any of my parishioners' children the idea that the world's scary, don't go into it. No, I don't. They don't need to be afraid. They're fine. They belong to Christ. They can handle it. There's nothing that's going to take their faith away. Nothing's going to blow them away. Nothing that God's truth can't handle. And that's one of the things I like about C.S. Lewis. There's nothing. You can just bring it on. Bring it on. We can handle it. And we don't need to be afraid or act like, uh oh, that's a little bit too tough for us. No, but things have to be age appropriate and maturity appropriate. So that's why I'm a big fan of, of sanctuary and of sheltering. Yeah, shelter them for a while. So should a Lutheran school be a solace from the world? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I will admit it. That's what I want. But now as they get older, they're going to be integrating the world and they're going to be asking questions all the time themselves. I learned this. I was that fit with this. I watched the news of the night. How's this fit with that? So they're going to be interacting with the world all the time. And that's where you as the parent and as the teacher and as the pastor help them actually process these things they're encountering from a Christian standpoint. We saw this happen. This president said this. This politician did that. This war happened here. How do we think about these things? How do we understand these things? Or this disaster just happened. This volcano just blew up. How do we think about these things? You help them understand these things so they can learn to engage the world in a Christian way without fear, without intimidation, but also with discernment. And that takes time. It takes a long time. It takes a childhood. That's why you've got a childhood. And that's why you educate them. And so the, the morphing from full-on shelter to engagement to actively living in and going after the world 
that's your job as parent primarily, but also as pastor and as teacher to work that out along the way in appropriate ways. And it takes time. And I think one of the mistakes we make in the world is we think kids are way more savvy and worldwide than they really are. And we expect them to be making adult decisions and adult discernment when they're not ready for it. And so we need to be, I think, let kids be kids for as long as we can and let them live that idyllic life for a while. Nothing wrong with that. They're going to encounter the hard things. Now, I'm not talking about shielding them from death. That's part of what they see as a Christian. They learn that. Take them to funerals. You help them deal with stuff. Sickness, suffering, sorrow. It's all part of life. But dealing with cross-dressing people or people who want to, you know, have gender reassignment surgery. No, not a topic for conversation at eight years old. Probably not even 12. You know, just you deal with it as you have to. And that's where the discernment comes in. And so I don't think we're creating people who are incapable of handling the world. Quite the contrary, we're making them strong in their faith so that when they come to the world, they're ready for it. Is that all making um, sense? Yeah, well, and I, I want to speak a little bit to, you know, if you're a parent out there, and I, I'm speaking from obviously a more theoretical perspective, um, not being a parent yet, but uh, from kind of an educational perspective, you say, well, when when is a kid ready? Um, I think the, the best markers I've seen for how do we, like what's a good systematic way to look at development? Um, I, I really am a big fan of Piaget's uh, stages of development. Mm -hmm. And in reality, a lot of topics that, that we want kids to be grounded in that that Christians should be grounded in and and have a firm grasp on I think before before they're challenged I guess um, are are abstract concepts right you're you're not necessarily dealing with very concrete things um, and kids and this is what kills me about children's messages that always use uh, metaphors um <laughs> kids do not get to a place where they are capable of abstract thought until optimistically they're 11 12. like if you if you have a very advanced a very a very smart kid they're going to get to that it's called the formal operational stage when they're 11 and 12. right so the question as if you're if you're a parent and you're saying so what's the line i say the line starts there and then the question is how long after that does it take to to ground them in the abstract concepts that they need to be grounded in to go forward that's right um, so no, that's, that's I, exactly right and you're invoking piaget is exactly what i i'm not i'm not an expert on piaget but he's simply paying attention to the reality of development brain function brain capability that's exactly right and so i'm totally with you josh on that one yeah, so what what I saw um, on my vicarage, we, we had a uh, pre-K through eighth grade school. And the, the kids that I saw go out of that school into the public high school um, were, were very well equipped by and large to face the public high school. They had been grounded for um, at least eight years, some of them up to 12 or 13 years in 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 the faith in teachers and people surrounding them who are building up their faith. And then they went into this public venue and 
based on my interactions and based on how they responded to different things in the school, I would say that they were very well equipped to do so, which also conveniently matches up with the fact that once you get to high school, it becomes very, very difficult to support all the things you need for a high school education from a from like a parochial standpoint, I think. Um, which I guess is more of the American thing, right? Can you compete with the public high schools? But yeah, it depends so. on what you find as needed. So that's true. That's true. Um, yeah. Good thoughts. Did, did you have a follow up to that, Josh, or were you just going to throw that out there and see what sticks? I, I think <laughs> I was just going to throw that out there. Well, and, Here's here's why I'm I I think it, it depends on the kid it depends on the fam like I was raised in a family where my discipleship didn't just happen at school my discipleship happened at home we did family right. devotions we prayed when we saw things on TV my parents would mute the TV to have conversations about I I remember very distinctly because this was a kind of uncomfortable conversation for me. We were watching the TV show, How I Met Your Mother. And they were waiting in line. I think they were going up to, they were going up, I don't know, they were going up some tall tall building in New York. And they were taught, the, the episode centered around them talking about all of their first times having sex. And I remember my parents, we stopped the show and we had a conversation about, um, how we shouldn't be having sex before marriage and, and in a discussion about what proper relations look like. Um, and I mean, and that stuck with me. And I'm thankful yeah. that I had parents who had those discipleship conversations with me who had that. And as a result, I went to a public high school. It was a in a lot of ways, it was a very stereotypical public high school. And I'm very thankful for my experience there. Because I did get to interact with a lot more of the world and you know, when I went to Vanderbilt, which is not a faith friendly place, I, I was pretty well prepared right. to hold on to my faith in hostile situations. That's right. Right. So I've always been an advocate for, I, I think high school can be a really, really good place to start to interact with the world in a way where the parents still have a lot of, you know, you can respond to things. You talk with your kid after school and say, what went on? How do we, how do we think about this? How do we talk about this? So yep. You know, your, your, your upbringing is exemplary. This is how it should work. Homes that take it seriously, and you have this integration of church and home. That's how it should work. And you need to recognize that you might not be the standard circumstance, even in Christian homes. And we so can call it weird. Yeah, that's well, okay. it's good. Um, <laughs> you should also know, full disclosure, I was um, kindergarten through 12 public schools. I didn't go to a parochial school until I went to Concordia, Ann Arbor. And so I'm, you know, that's just what I grew up with. So I, I know what it's like on both sides of things. So my goal here is not, as I said, it's not to try to pull away from the world at all, but it's so that we can faithfully engage the world with God's truth and not get swallowed up by or redirected by the world. That's the concern. So we've covered now education and politics, which... Well, we haven't covered politics, but we've touched okay. on we, we, Yes, we've touched on both education and politics. Um, 
as two big places where this idea of the two realms really comes to light. Yeah. Um, but we're, we're running low on your time here. But do you have any other examples of, of places where we should really be cognizant of, of this kind of approach to our, our interaction with the world? Well, I think even in, in our church, like church meetings, worship, we should be thinking about what does it mean for us to be church? And we need to recognize that the goal of the church is not just to give people um, a little pick-me-up from a spiritual standpoint or to give them some God in their life or some foundation for their morals. The point of the church it, present in the world is to be God's presence to the world. What's our task? It's to witness God's reality to the world. And yes, we do that in conversations, but we do it also in just our attitude of service to the world and how we function in the world. We need to be functioning as the church, as a community that takes seriously the word of Christ. We live with reconciliation at the center. We live with forgiveness as our bread and butter. We do it all the time. We need it. We need to give it. We do. We function with a, a generosity and how we care for each other. The church needs to be that for the sake of the world, because the best witness we give the world is by being a church that is different from the world. Um, in the early church, in the first couple of centuries of the church's existence, the church is growing gangbusters. Was it because they had such a great rational argument for belief in God? Was it because they had such good apologetics? Was it because they had such great institutions? They had none of that stuff. They didn't have anything attractive to the world. What they had was a crazy, incredible love for each other and the love for the people around them that was undeniable and it made an impact. See how they love each other. That's what marked the church. And that's why the church grew. They're the ones who go out and care for abandoned babies. They're the ones who love their enemies. They're the ones who don't fight back. What's with this, people? What's going on here? And see, there's a consistency about it. And so what the church needs to recognize is instead of trying to figure out how to integrate with the world or make sense to the world, we don't make sense to the world. We need to be unapologetically who we are as the church and let that be what defines us in our school board meetings and in the way we vote and in the way we raise our kids. We just look different. We're weird, but we're weird in a way that is undeniably attractive because there's something about this because we're happy. We enjoy life. We delight in God's gifts. We celebrate beauty. We try to create beauty. We like being with each other. We, we can enjoy a good beer and we can do it without being an idiot. And so you see all this kind of stuff shapes what it means to be God's people in the world. And that's what the church needs to be thinking about. Worrying less about, are we relevant? Yeah, we're by definition relevant. How are we going to get more people to come? We get people to come by engaging them in real life and inviting them to participate in what we've got. You see, the church needs to pay attention to its niche that God has given it in the world, which is to be the witness of his reality, and his reality is for the whole world. It's not this bifurcated, that's church stuff, that's world stuff, No, the church is here for the sake of the world. So I think keeping two realms straight helps us be church much better, if that makes sense. And so I'm a little bit on the soapbox here, but yeah, these things I think about a fair amount. Um, and, and try to communicate them a fair amount too. So yeah, I've, I've got my spiel ready to go here. We appreciate it. I think this, uh, <laughs> when we were emailing back and forth about potential topics, this was one of the ones you said you could do a full day on. So, oh, <laughs> um, so how, when 
as you listeners know, we don't warn our guests about anything, but how we like to end <laughs> these episodes is just if if you're if you want the listener to take one thing away from the podcast, kind of one quick little couple sentences, what would that be? Um, yeah, my biggest thing, I guess, is for the listener, and I'm assuming the listener's got some kind of a Christian predisposition, but my takeaway would be don't bifurcate your life. Don't don't get so neatly encapsulated that I've got my work life, my family life, my church life, my, my leisure life. No, the whole thing belongs to Christ. It, it's all God's. And so you need to be thinking about your home life and your church life and your work life all in the context of God. And you need to think about your political life in the context of God. Does God have a way for me to vote? He does. Does God have a way for me to be politically active? He does. And it's not just what the right wing tells me to do or what the, you know, the guy who I watch on the, my favorite podcast is telling me to do, notwithstanding the present company. Um, <laughs> the, the key thing here is I'm seeing everything through the lens of Christ's reality. He died. He rose. He's coming again. Changes everything. It changes my priorities in my home. It changes what I want in the world. It changes how I think about what matters. It changes how I look at retirement changes everything, everything. And that's what I think they should take away from this. So the two realms helps us recognize not a nice neat bifurcation that allows me to have my secular life and my sacred life. No, it helps you realize that God is invested in everything. And he's got a way that everything is supposed to work and that he wants things to work. And that the Christian needs to be paying attention to that as it unfolds in my life. All right, Ben. You want to go next? Yeah, I I think I'm just going to go with the very quotable, good Christians make bad Americans. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to use that a lot. I'll good. quote you on it. I'll quote you on well, it. Ben, you have fun with that means. one. Explain what it means. You see, the reason I usually say that, just I, I, I don't want to command all the time here, but I, I guess I do. Um, but the reason I say that is because so many good Christians, especially Lutherans, have this idea that I just want to get back to the way things used to be. You know, we need, oh, I miss the old days. And the older you are, my, you know, old guys like me, you know, boomers and stuff, oh, it used to be. And if we can only get back to, no, that's nonsense. There was no good time. There was never, you know, what we have today in America is exactly what's built into the Constitution. It is the fruition of everything that was planned, that if man is the center and if people decide and if we, the people, are the foundation for reality, this is what you get. This is what you get. And so it's always been at odds with Christianity. And we need to get past this silly nostalgia of all oh, the good old days or the Christian America. There's no such thing. Uh, America is an enlightenment founded experiment based on man as the center. That's what it is. Does it do a lot of good in the world? Yep. Is it a good place to raise a family? It can be. And I'm not, do I hate being an American? No, I've got it good. I know that. But this notion that somehow Christianity and America are completely compatible, that's, that's got to be shot down. So yeah, you can quote me widely on that one, Ben. Have at it. Will do. Will do. Josh? Um, I think uh, my, my takeaway is just a question for, for us to, and you said specifically, when we're voting, does my vote advance God's purpose? But I kind of want to broaden that considering all the topics we talked about. And just as a listener, if you're going forward and you're saying, how should this impact my life? When you're thinking about things, when you're making decisions, when you're, when you're talking about the world, 
is what you're doing advancing God's purpose? And let that kind of be a defining question for a lot of what you do and how you think about things. Yeah, yeah. I think that's spot on. That's good. You know, the old thing, WWJD, what would Jesus do? We don't always know. Jesus was Jesus. But you know what God wants you to do. And because he's told you in his commandments and he's made it pretty clear. And so you should be asking. I think that's exactly right, Josh. Every one of your decisions. What movie should I see? What car should I buy? What would God have me do? What's advancing his kingdom? What's proclaiming his truth? What's witnessing to the world around me? That's the way to think about it. It doesn't mean there's cut and dry answers. There rarely are cut and dry answers. That's what makes it fun to be a Christian. And that's why we have such variety among ourselves. Some guys like to wear their hair one way, one guy another way. And it's all cool. Um, there's, there's room. <laughs> but we need to be paying attention to the bigger question is, what would God have us do? Yep. All right. So uh, I'm going to thank you for your time. So if you need to duck out and move on, you can. I'll do but that. But for you listeners, it's shameless plug time. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I'll see you guys. You guys good to your plugging. Take care now. It was, it was great to see you, Dr. Beerman. Thank you, Dr. Right. Beerman. For the rest of you listeners, uh, you can check us out on all your favorite podcasting platforms, whether that's Google Podcasts, Apple, iTunes, whatever they call it now, um, Spotify. And I, I, I think I might know why we're not on Pandora yet. So I'm going to try a fix this, this upcoming week. And maybe even by the time this podcast comes out, you'll be able to catch us on Pandora. Um, so check us out on whatever, however you listen to podcasts, go ahead and subscribe to us because I mean, that, that gives you the notification or reminder to listen. But what that also does is validates us a little bit, which we're always <laughs> We're it's all good. about that it's, self-aggrandizement. It's, it's, it's nice to look and say and like see, hey, people care enough to subscribe to the podcast, right? That's kind of nice for us. Um, we do also have a Facebook page. Like it if you want. We don't care nearly as much about the Facebook page. It's mostly there. So if you want to submit a topic or if you want to request to come on the show or you have questions or anything like that and you don't know either of us personally, you can reach out to the Facebook page it does get checked. Uh, I check it probably once a day um, just to see if anything new has come in. So um, that is there. That is mostly for you guys. And with that, brothers and sisters, go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.